Hey everybody, we're back with another episode of a Northern Wine Odyssey. We've got your man Paul Brady, and I'm Dan Belmont. This podcast is presented by Cork Report Media. To listen, search a Northern Wine Odyssey in Spotify, Google, or Apple Podcasts. Today, we're talking summer barbecues and crafting our perfect winery tasting room experience. Here we go. And we're back. How you doing, Paul? Doing all right. It's, uh, it's quite a quite a pretty morning here. Although I do think we're going to get some, uh, some thunderstorms today, which could be good. As we were just talking, everybody uh, is uh, asking for some rain so their lawns can be nice and green. You know. Yeah, we've got a, a scorcher here uh, in uh, the United Kingdom. Hottest day of the year right now, uh, topping about 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which uh, <laughs> I know doesn't sound all that bad, but you got to remember that there's no air conditioning here, and so it's it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, we don't have central AC at our house here. Um, it can be kind of brutal with the afternoon sun, but uh, for the most part, it's it's pleasant, and uh, I don't know, I kind of like the summer summer heat it makes you makes you want to have that extra sip of beer yeah i mean pretty much here everyone just goes out outside you know you enjoy the parks you enjoy your your backyard and uh and and yeah i mean i've got i've got barbecue on the brain we've been uh we've been grilling out and and uh i just did a um a blog for uh lieber uh the appliance company here in the uk they're fresh mag uh we just did some barbecue pairing tips and then i put that along with a promotion on uh the good wine good people website and so we've got a bunch of our favorite barbecue wines on sale and and yeah i even uh, i even treated myself I, I ordered a new barbecue grill it's on the way okay so i have to ask so when in the context of what what you were just blogging about um when you use the word barbecue over there in the uk what does that word mean i think it is a pretty general blanket statement for cooking over charcoal i'd say or even or even gas at that point i mean you know i i do believe that there is there is barbecue right proper barbecue southern american barbecue and then there's grilling right burgers and hot dogs on the grill in the backyard fine um and uh, i think those are two distinct things but but for the intent and purpose of this uh, article, I kind of said, you know, whether you are grilling over gas or cooking low and slow, smoking low and slow, you know, we've got something for everybody. It's funny. I'm like kind of obsessed with traditional Southern American barbecue now, but, but before moving to New York, I maybe like many people, the word barbecue was synonymous to grilling. Uh, You know, if somebody said, we're going to barbecue or come over for a barbecue, whether it was a verb or a noun, to me, that just meant throwing stuff on the grill. Um, uh, Later, move to New York, get into restaurants, read Danny Meyer's book, and he's talking about his restaurant, Blue Smoke, talking about barbecue and and the nuances of it and this and that. And then I'm, and and I start, you know, kind of getting into, Getting into that, I went and checked out that restaurant and then just sort of developed a, an obsession with like all the different regional styles, like mm. thought it was so cool. I and mean, there's a lot like wine, you know, because it's, you have these almost like appellations, right? You have your Carolina style, your Texas style, your Tennessee style, your Kansas City style. And, and everybody is very, very uh, you know, passionate about their regional style, so much like wine. Absolutely. I mean, they are really different. I mean, I, you know, I went to, to college in Carolina and then um, that's your vinegar based sauce there. And then, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's a very big category and it's a diverse category when it's broken down. And I think that's, that's a lot of fun. I mean, do you, do you have a favorite? I don't think I have a favorite. I, I like so much about all of them. So I like to make uh, vinegar based sauces. I like to, I like to make pulled pork, uh, and I like to make just certain kinds of dishes that are tasty with that Carolina style vinegar sauce. I do really like that sauce. I also love, you know, this, uh, they call it Alabama white sauce. Oh yeah. That's another one of my favorites. Pretty easy to make. The book that I use is, is Mike Mills's book. Um, and again, Danny Meyer, the restaurateur wrote the foreword for that. And, and it's a really handy book, recipes for all sorts of things, you know, meat dishes, sauces, 
very comprehensive, very good, a very good read. It, it lays it out pretty clearly, all the different regional styles and whatnot. I guess the thing that like I'm, I'm kind of coming around to now, I'm more of a pulled pork guy or a brisket guy and less of a ribs guy. Um, but I'm coming around. I really do like ribs, but um, you know they're they're tough to do. And then and then you know do you do you want them the St. Louis way, the Kansas way, the Memphis way? Like I, I'm learning a little bit more about that. That's super fun. Uh, when I when I hear the word barbecue, that's that's immediately where my brain takes me to to all those kind of various styles. But that's where my brain wants to take me because I think it's a it's just a newer style of eating uh, for me in my life at this point than just a burger on a grill. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, out of the 12 wines that I have on promotion, uh, we've got white, we've got skin contact, we've got rosé, we've got red, and we've got sparkling. Uh, there really is something for everybody. Uh, New York-wise, I have the uh, the Channing Daughters Mosaico from 2016 on the list, uh, which is, which is a, a killer wine. What is, what is that blend? Oh, that's got a little bit of everything in it. Let me, uh, uh, I've got it in front of me. So Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Gewürz. Yeah, cool. I, I One of my favorite wine dinners that I ever did was all Finger Lakes wines, specifically the all-sauce varieties. So mm-hmm. it was Riesling, Gewürz, Pinot Gris. We, we even had a Muscat flight. And then we had uh, Pinot Noir, and I think that was probably it. We had some sparkling, sparkling Riesling as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was there was a sparkling course, then Riesling, Pinot Gris, Muscat, and Gewurz. Yeah, and basically the way we did it was it was a trade dinner. There was about twenty different buyers and psalms and stuff there, and the food came out family style, all sorts of different stuff. We had smoked wings with that Alabama white sauce we were talking about. There was pulled pork, there was brisket, there were ribs, uh, all sorts of sides, you know, fun like um, collard greens, um, some sort of, uh, uh, I'm sure there were some baked beans of some sort. I think there was some sort of like cheesy potato kind of dish. And uh, I mean, the wines are just they're so refreshing with their acid and their lower alcohol that like all that salty fat, it's just like begging for those wines. It's not like a pairing per se. It's just really any of them. Sure. I mean, when, that's one of the fun things about barbecue. When you start getting into these sauces, you know, there is the the acidic tang from vinegar. There is a lot of sweetness in the sauce. And so those styles of wines that have high acid and sometimes a bit of residual sugar uh, really do play quite well. Um, my, uh, mate, my business partner, uh, Nathan Lithgow, um, is the kind of founder behind Holy Ground NYC. And they were, uh, down in, uh, Tribeca for a few years, uh, prior to the pandemic. And now they're kind of just doing, um, uh, kind of street events from their truck, uh, which is pretty epic, but he, uh, penned a, a recipe for us for this blog, needed an Asian style barbecue marinade. And, uh, I, I paired the, uh, the mosaico with that. What about red wines? What are what are you enjoying in terms of red wines? And are you chilling these red wines down? Absolutely. And so I am, you know, I did kind of frame this as it's summertime, right? And so we are doing barbecue in the summer. And so for me, I think, you know, having that bit of chill, and I, I tend to drink most reds with at least a little bit of a chill. Um, but I mean, I have one, uh, a California wine called Fredo, uh, and it is 100% Sangiovese, but um, meant to be chilled. And the label actually turns blue when it gets cold. <laughs> it's like the the Coors Light of of California Sangiovese. <laughs> that is awesome, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, and then uh, I got a one liter of Zweigelt from Austria. Um, I've got some uh, really crunchy Sinso from uh, South Africa that's called Thirst. Uh, you know, uh, really kind of kind of apropos. And then there's even a bit of um, bit of Sicily, some Etna uh, on there, some Norella Mascalese, which I think does really well. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, all very happy for the Reds. A bit of Grenache, too. Grenache is definitely one of my favorite ones because Grenache can really showcase some of that kind of confectionery fruit, that kind of sweet, sticky fruit. Uh, and I think that that plays really well, especially when you're kind of going like traditional kind of just, you know, smoky, sticky barbecue sauce. I think you can kind of throw the the old-fashioned pairing rules out the window. I mean, when I, I my sort of inspiration for that dinner that I mentioned earlier was from spending time in Alsace. And eating and drinking there and realizing, okay, well, when we think about Alsace food, it's a lot of 
It's a lot of meat and potatoes. You know, there's a lot of slow cooked, smoked ham and sausages. And, and again, like you know, a tart flambe, which is, you know, cheese and bread and bacon and caramelized onion and white wines, you know, I mean, the white wines, Rieslings and, and, and Muscat and, and such that are high in acid and just so, so refreshing. I mean, it, it truly is like a better pairing, I almost think, because it's going to quench your thirst, perhaps more so than uh, than a red wine would. And in that region, of course, the red wine is Pinot Noir, which is, again, just sort of a white wine in disguise, as they say. So, uh, I mean, that that was that was the inspiration in, in the the I mean, the wines and the food are, are so similar. I almost think there's this unspoken of symbiotic relationship between East Coast wines and like Southeast American barbecue. It's kind of like a neat cultural geographic thing. Yeah. I yeah, I dig a, that. a lot of fun with it. Yeah. When I went to Alsace, um, I had a very formative kind of experience. And I think this might be a nice transition kind of into the, the larger plan for our conversation today. Uh, but I, you know, I worked at Murray's Cheese for many years. And one of the things that I just avoided was Munster. That Alsatian Munster is just so rank and ripe. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, New York City subway on a hot summer day kind of vibes. Uh, and just it really, really just couldn't couldn't get anywhere near it and then i went to alsace and there was a restaurant that um served just like the munster plate and it was just uh, a plate with the munster and kind of one had some cumin seeds on it another one had a bit of a wine wash another one blah 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 uh, but it was served exclusively with gewurz and I'll tell you, I probably ate a pound of Munster cheese because that pairing was so spot on. Um, you know, it really goes to show like what grows together goes together. Um, and you have this really kind of meaty, funky, unctuous cheese uh, that, that you know, uh, opposites attract with this bright, floral, you know, aromatic, uh, uh, grape. It was, uh, it was really impressive. And so I always, you know, I say like, sometimes if, if you don't like something, whether it's the wine or it's the food, maybe you just haven't found it's, it's mate yet, you know? Now, am I imagining this or is that one of the cheeses that goes traditionally on a tart flambe? They call it fromage blanc. Like I, I'm look, just like looking at a recipe right now and, uh, I'm kind of an, I'm an amateur tart flambe cook. Anyway, I love a, Fucking yeah. tart flambe. Um, <laughs> you, you are a tart flambe. <laughs> All right, we'll have another, ep another episode, tart flambe's. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, like for, again, that, that, that experience was, was very kind of uh, formative for me. I refer to it quite a bit, um, you know, just kind of in, in educational settings because it was such an eye opening experience. And, and so, you know, kind of cue into our plan for today, uh, was kind of uh, talking about formative, uh, winery experiences, um, and kind of really trying to craft what we believe would be an ideal winery visit, you know, and I think one of the things will, will be a little tough for us is we are so geeky that, you know, um, we want to create the ideal winery visit for everybody, not just wine professionals. Right. And so, um, let's try and kind of think about how to balance that out as we go, because I'm looking at my list and I'm like, geeky, geeky, geeky. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm curious to see, why don't you, why don't you start us off? We each picked five things, uh, and we'll just kind of trade back and forth and, and riff off it. Sure. So, I mean, I kind of tried to think of it in, 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 in those two different ways that you mentioned, like what's a visit like for somebody who's in the industry? What's a visit like for a curious consumer? Um, and the, the common thread that I, that I see that I have found just from sort of writing my thoughts down is that I, both myself and, and I don't know that in this time and place, the best way to engage a consumer is the sort of classic walk into a, a winery tasting room, walk up to a tasting bar. You're going to have, you know, three to six glasses put in front of you with, with about a couple ounces of wine in each of them. And someone's going to kind of take you through the flight. I don't know. Something sounds very stodgy about that to me uh, in terms of where we're at with wine these days. I don't want to do that as a member of the trade or as someone who just likes to drink. So that's, I guess that's sort of like just the, the most basic ass way to do it is walk up to bar, 
flight is in front of you, taste flight, buy some wine and leave. Or don't buy wine and leave. I don't know. I think we have to think about this uh, in, in terms of, like, I'm thinking about this. What is the best con- experience for the consumer and what's the best for the winery? I mean, the winery wants to sell wine, right? Yeah, I think I think at that point, you know, I think if it is that straightforward, I think the person behind the bar who's pouring has to be a legitimate rock star in order to kind of make me walk out and say, yeah, I'd do that again, you know? Yeah, like the flight is so good and the person is so good that that is a good enough show. Right. Right. And I can think of, you know, I can think of, I can think of a few of those in- instances where that works out. I mean, you know, uh, you go to uh, Johannes at, at Cometer and it's, it's pretty much him at a small tasting bar and some wine. And, you know, you usually leave feeling pretty darn good about the world at that point. And it's because it's Johannes pouring the wine, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Johannes is a rock star. I mean, there's the, not everyone can pull that off. Like, I mean, he, he, he is like genetically engineered for that. So, so I, I, I want to kind of just get that out of the way that like that experience, I, I, I don't think you can only do that. I do think there needs to be a, a something in addition to that to hook uh, current and new consumers mm. and also keep the trade interested. I mean, it's not all that. I really don't know about you, but I, I don't go to that many wineries as a civilian. But when I do, I, I am looking for something in particular. So that brings me to the first winery that I immediately thought of when you brought up this topic, which is Three Brothers uh, in, the, in the Finger Lakes on the northeast side of Seneca Lake. This is a winery that is not always in the same conversation as what you might call like the Finger Lakes zeitgeist or something. Uh, it's a very good winery that offers a lot, a lot to do. And I think it's, it's maybe sort of never been better. Like they've got an excellent winemaker in Kim Marconi and they've got a brewery. They've also got a cidery. They've got this <clears throat> really, really big and fun campus of all sorts of things to do. I mean, and it was set up that way from the beginning. And over time, they, they've really sort of just gradually like immersed themselves in all the corners of the industry up there. I mean, they are a winery that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people want to visit and have a good time there in during the busy season on the weekends, uh, whether they are, you know, very, very just uh, uh, entry level consumers just looking for a good time or someone like you or me who might not want to go and taste barrel samples. You know, if we don't want to work, if we don't want to work that day, then and we just want to have a good time and sit in a nice big Adirondack chair by a by a fire pit or at a communal table, you know, throwing back a pint of beer or cider or grabbing a bottle of like a really freaking cool uh, dry Velvet Muscat with some some Lees aging, you know, or an amazing Cabernet Franc or I mean they're making they're growing Barbera and making like these snappy light juicy Barberas. They're making a uh, traditional method like sparkling wine out of Barbera that's got like a little bit of residual sugar. And it's like there's there truly is something for everyone and they're doing it at a really high level. And it's a fun place to just go and, and relax, not think too hard and, you know, hire a driver for the day and, and throw a few back and cut loose. Uh, that's like when I just really think about what I would want to do on a day up in the Finger Lakes or anywhere, it would be a winery like that where I can just kind of have some fun and really quite honestly, not think about work. Right. And so, and so, I mean, is the takeaway there like diversity of offering, you know, something for everyone? I I don't know if it's that, or if it's more just that I know I'm going to be able to find something that I like there. uh, And that the atmosphere is going to be fun Mm -hmm. first and foremost, Fun over formal. Okay, good. That that's that's what I'm looking for there. Mm-hmm. See, I, I actually do uh, a good amount of winery visits, uh, whether it's incognito or just treat me like everybody else because I travel with family a lot. You know, um, I'm the only one in the industry and the only one that generally regards wine the way that I do. Even my wife, she's been with me for over a decade. Um, but still for, for her, you know, it's, um, it's, it's just, it's wine. It's not business, you know? Um, and it's, it's, uh, 
for me, sometimes they go, oh, well, you know this. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? Give us, give us your spiel anyway. I want to see how you, how you treat anybody, you know? And, and I, I want you to do the tour as if I'm, I'm, I'm whoever, you know? And there's other times where I'm just very happy to not tell anybody that I'm industry and just kind of take it all in. I think that's a really important experience. I think that also gives you a really good sense of, of how a winery treats their guests. You know, it goes back to kind of what we were talking about in uh, two episodes ago about kind of hospitality and that empathy and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's real good. Um, so my first one, um, I think that every tasting should start with an update on what's going on at the winery that week and why. Okay. Whether it's leaf thinning or bottling or pressing or, um, you know, tilling or, or whatever it is, you know, I think we need to introduce the notion to consumers that wine is an agricultural product and that you are on a farm. What do you think about that? I like that. So, so in this case, the winery tasting room would have to be on a farm, which is sure. not always the case. Sure. Um, but, but for the most part, I think when people think wine tasting, they, they are thinking about getting out into the agriculture area. Yep. So, um, I like that. So that, yeah, that sort of sets a, a, a nice little narrative for whoever's leading the tasting to, to dive into and, and offer talking points. So that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's memorable. I want to see an extension of, you know, you can't have every tasting with the winemaker, obviously. Right. And I, I think, you know, I, I, again, this, these winemakers as rock stars, you know, that's, that's the experience I want. And so to give me a bit of that glimpse into their lives via the tasting room, I think would be really cool. And it's as simple as, you know, an update from the winemaking team or the winery owners to the hospitality staff, to the tasting room staff saying, this is what's going on this week. Share this with 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 your guests. You know, give them a look behind the curtain, right? And I mean, you know, um, when I was working at the the restaurant group, every day before the shift, we'd go through and just talk about the oysters that we have, right? And then because uh, they would change daily, and so then you have talking points just on the oysters that you could pick up every day. And I think it, it wouldn't be all too hard to kind of just say like, this is what's going on right now, because yeah, you might not be squat on a farm you might be getting your grapes from growers but you're never really just sitting around twiddling your thumbs um you know it might even be we are you know on trade you know our winemaker is doing a trade trip to x you know market um you know to try and, and spread the the good wine word over there you know i think that still to me is interesting to see that this is a business that is a lot more than just someone splashing wine into my glass and walking away Okay, so on that note, though, so that that's a good place to start a conversation. But what else is going on during during this experience? Well, I, I think it's an introduction to just the now you're going to start to taste the wines. I mean, I, I think so. Again, I think if we went back to how would I elevate that very simple setup of you walk up to a bar, someone greets you someone pours wine in your glass, you know, I think you can elevate that experience without being the winemaker, without being Johannes. I think you can, you know, um, uh, give people that kind of insider scope and, um, you just get a little bit more of a, of a sense of, of, ownership is the right word, but I want to feel a connection to what's in the glass. You know what I mean? I want to feel like, like, people give a shit about how this wine is made. And those are the wines that I'm excited to drink. Those are the wines that I'm excited to take home. Those are the wines that I'm excited to pour for my friends and tell them and share them those stories. And so, um, so yeah, I just think, um, I think that's, you know, the kind of, of, of conversation I want to be having over a general tasting rather than someone telling me that it tastes like peaches. So that's really hard. So I think what you're, what you're talking about here is, in a perfect world is necessary. Yeah. It's hard to train staff, uh, to really get them to be authoritative, to really have all that background knowledge about the wine, because in a busy season at a big winery, I mean, you need, you need a number of people working in a tasting room and not everybody's going to be at that level to be able to do that. So let me, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. What, what would you do to, to train, you know, uh, a new crop of, of tasting room staff to, to get them caught up 
to be able to execute in a way that you want. Yeah. I mean, th- this was something I would literally do. I mean, um, a winery would bring me in, in April, you know, or May as they're, as they're doing their staff up for, for the busy season. And I'd come in and I would do a session on wine 101, literally just making sure everyone has a basic level of knowledge on what wine is and how it's made. I would engage with the winemaking staff in conversation with the whole team to have a better understanding of what they're doing uh, on any given, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of day. And, and to, again, to just kind of make sure that the winery tasting staff is these, this extension of the brand and the winery and, and all that's going on there. Um, you know, and I think um, something that we're talking about with uh, the Wine and Grape Foundation is is kind of going in and giving kind of broader New York wine uh, uh, courses for for teams as well, um, you, you know, just so that they have regional knowledge and, and regional context and, and bigger context as to how New York State wine sits within the bigger, bigger wine picture in, in the United States. And so, you know, I understand what you're saying in staffing. And I mean, staffing um, currently, there's a, there's a staffing crisis in the United Kingdom right now. It's very hard to find good staff, especially in the hospitality industry. Um, but, you know, I think back to that restaurant in New York City and, you know, I mean, it was just a bunch of waiters, but if you really wanted to be good, you had to, you know, you had to engage your, your customers, you had to engage with your, your, your clients essentially. And so, you know, those sessions that we would do pre-shift, it was just a pre-shift meeting, but that pre-shift meeting geared everybody up, got people excited. Um, you know, we weren't, we weren't chanting and singing songs, but we were, we were going through, you know, the kind of, the kind of talking points for the day and, and what we can be excited about. And even if you're spoon feeding them this stuff, I mean, you know, I, I think you need, my expectation for my staff would be just a, a bit of, of enthusiasm, uh, um, you know, uh, behind what they're doing. That's all. Maybe that's a big ask. Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember talking to a, a director of winery operations about, about what we're talking about here. And, and, and because some of the people who listen to this podcast are winery owners uh, and managers, there's something that everybody working in a winery tasting room should be doing. And I don't think that it's a pushy sales thing. I actually do think it is more hospitable, which mm-hmm. is, it's very simple. At the end of every interaction, every tasting, what you should say to the guest is, would you like to take anything home with you? And having knowledge about the wines, first and foremost, is going to help sell wine, right? So what you just went through, training people in hospitality, encouraging people to to have the wine 101 basics in their vocabulary and whatnot, that, that's a really good idea. That's going to help a winery sell wine. And But simply just asking, because, because you do see a fair number of people come into wineries, bang out the tasting, and then leave without anything. I think that's fine. And there are some people who just want to do that. But I do think more often than not, people want to remember their visit and they do want to take the wines that they like with them. So don't think of it as pushy salesmanship. Just think of it as hospitality. Hey, want to take anything with you that you tasted? I'm happy to happy to wrap it up for you. Yep. How can we, how can you, you know, I hope you had a good time. How can we continue this experience beyond this visit, you know? And that might be a wine, that might be information on a wine club. That might be, that might be literally just taking a bottle home. That might just be trying something again and asking a question. Do you have any questions, you know? And if it's something that you don't know the answer to, oh, let me see if I can find that out. You know, it's, it's, um, it comes natural to, to more people, to some people more than others. I get that, you know? And so, yeah, it, it, I want to be, be respectful of, of different personality types because I do know that I am quite outgoing. Um, and so. Yeah, I just, I know very introverted, quiet servers that we had at that restaurant who could turn it on at a table because all that was their job, you know? Yeah, I do think that, you know, a a winery should have goals. Mm -hmm. And I do think that guests want to remember their visit. And a goal that I have, you know, we're not at this level yet, but I would love someday if I could say that, you know what, every for every tasting that we do, we sell two bottles of wine. Uh, and I think that that's a good goal to have. And I, and I truly do believe that people want to take things with them because when they get home, they're going to want to tell their friends about what they did. They're going to want to, in a few months from then, pull out that bottle that they bought, think back to their trip, like send people out the door with stuff. It's my souvenir, you know, those are, those are my souvenirs for sure. You know, my haul. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, even if it's not wine, even if it's a t-shirt or a hat or a wine key or or a little map, you know, have things to give away, not just to sell yeah. too. I mean, I give away so many of those silly hats that you've seen in, hmm. in you know, in our Instagram and whatnot. And it's it's just really fun to, to see people out in the world, uh, you know, remembering their visit. Yep. All right, you're up. What's next? I'm up. Okay. So the next thing on my list is actually Finger Lake Cider House. Mm. Have you been there? I have not. You should try to make it over there if you can. Uh, it is on the west side of Cayuga Lake, not too far from some of the other uh, familiar wineries that you would know. And one of the reasons I like going there, Ben Riccardi took me there for the first time. We we went there to have lunch specifically, and they have a really good setup. So this was actually during in summer of 2020 when when stuff was weird. And when we walked in immediately, somebody was at the front directing traffic. Again, this person was sharp, very hospitable Mm -hmm. because at that time, everything had to be socially distanced and, you know, most people wanted to, to, you know, grab their food or drinks or whatever and get outside. They were just, it was an A plus greeting. Hey, here's, here's what's going on. This is how it works. We're going to give you, you're going to place your order here. I'm going to give you this little number thing to take to your table, whether you're inside or outside. Uh, Sounds very basic. Sounds like counter service 101. And and maybe that's what it was, but it was just done in a smart way. And I just felt taken care of immediately. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is have a good greeting, you know, get, say hello to everyone who walks in that door and make, Make sure that they know where they're going. Make sure you let them know uh, how it works and that because they're going to have something that they're looking to do and that way they're going to be able to accomplish that easier. Um, so a solid front door greeting. Yeah, you, Dan, as the ultimate maitre d' know a lot about that. Yeah, I, I think it's important to set expectations, right? Yeah. So shout out to Finger Lake Cider House for, for in, a, in a really weird time, doing a, doing a, a, a very hospitable job with that front door. Uh, the other thing I like about it is that they they have a restaurant, they're making good food, and it very much also feels like a bar. I mean, you can kind of belly up to their bar and taste, or you can just grab a glass or a bottle or whatever it is, and and then sit and eat this delicious pulled pork. Here we are back to barbecue. Uh, hmm. I had this like salad with pulled pork, and it had like tomatoes right from their farm, and it was it was tasty, it was quick. It was well executed and I'm eating and drinking. I'm not doing like a formal flight of anything, but I probably had a couple glasses of different cider. I mean, I also love to drink cider when you're out kind of on a, on a winery trip or whatever with lunch or something, because it's a little bit lower ABV mm-hmm. and you know, you can, you can throw a couple glasses back and, and still be able to, to safely drive or, or just be sharp. Um, so yeah, I mean, simply just having a, an atmosphere to, have lunch in or take a breather with some food and, and some low ABV stuff to kind of recharge goes a long way with me. So that Finger Lake Cider House, I I now like to keep that on my radar uh, to go back to to have lunch when I'm in that part of the region. Yeah, that's real good. I'm going to try and uh, uh, pop in when I'm uh, up there later this month. Very exciting. Um, yeah, I think, you know, for, for me, I am definitely a saddle up to the bar kind of guy. I like it fairly casual. And I think COVID came around and really necessitated uh, the kind of organized experience in in the sense that, you know, we're going to direct you here. You're going to take your number. You're going to sit at your table. You're going to get a flight. You know, it's, it, it, it had to be a little bit more structured in order to be kept safe. And now that, you know, I, and, and I know very well that, that COVID is, is still very much a thing. Um, the UK does feel particularly relaxed with it at the moment, but a lot of, you know, we, we see remnants of COVID in the hospitality world. And I went to an outdoor uh, kind of bar setting um, just yesterday to meet a buddy and uh, you couldn't go to the bar and order a drink. You had to go to the table and be directed to the table and you had to scan the QR code and download the app and order from the app and, and, uh, yeah, I, I struggle whether like, oh, technology's awesome or like, man, can I just go and go to the barkeep and get me a drink, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I go back and forth. I think, you know, it, it um, and, and obviously, you know, as someone who, who yourself like running a hospitality business, uh, uh, 
in in the times of COVID, these are things that you have to think about and then then find solutions to when we open our our brick and mortar, you know, in the coming year. Um, these are absolutely things that we're going to have to think about just because I do, you know, still very much respect and understand that COVID is still very much a thing in our world, you know. Um, and so, yeah, um, interesting times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a good reminder right now for all of us. I mean, whatever this little, little wave that we have, we're, there's certainly a wave going on right now. A lot, a lot of people are getting it for a second or third time or, or finally for the first time. And it doesn't seem like there's much appetite over here either for, for the restrictions to be put back in place. Things seem to be going pretty much business as usual, but you're right. I do think that we should be ready to, to, to change direction and, continue to make things safe for people. You know, we've still got HEPA filters that we have inside Mm -hmm. uh, our spot. Um, Again, you know, uh, the way, the reason we set up as a retail shop as well as a bar was specifically with that in mind. You know, if people are not going to be so comfortable coming into the bar, they can still come and grab stuff to take home with them. And that's really the lifeblood for for our business model. Um, So, yeah, good good reminder that uh, we should all, you know, respect, uh, fear fear and respect, uh, you know, the elements. Absolutely. And so my next one is, is a bit about technology. And, and I think, you know, I happen to be someone who occasionally takes a picture of their food <laughs> with their phone. Um, and, and, you know, there are certainly experiences where I say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to savor the moment and the food and take it all in fine. Um, but as someone who also has to run a social media account, food and wine play heavily into that. Uh, and so sometimes I feel like I have to by default, but it, it feels to me that, you know, people were bringing out their phones during dining and winery experiences on their own. And then now in certain cases you have to, like I couldn't show up to that bar without a phone, I wouldn't have been able to order. Right. And so, uh, a winery and I, I won't, I won't, I'm not calling anybody out. And I actually think it's a, it's a pretty cool idea, um, because it blends a bit of what I was talking about earlier, but, um, the post is, you know, uh, our wine flights are here, you know, and enjoy them, uh, relaxing at our tables. And each wine flight includes a QR code with a tasting note video from our winemaker. What do you think about that? I like that. Uh, I mean, I, using technology, always great, streamlining things, you know, uh, certainly uh, valid and not inhospitable. I think we all need to be tolerant of methods such as that. And yeah, uh, I'm a fan. I support it. It's smart. It's savvy. It's good business. It's good for bottom line. Yeah, I, I love hearing stuff like that. Good. I, I think I'm a pro too. Even if even if I don't watch that video in the moment, I would sooner buy the wine because I know I could reference back to it, right? Because that that video lives on the internet somewhere, right? And so I could click it, save that link, even if I'm not watching it in the moment, you know, at, at that that picnic table because I'm having a good time with with the people that I'm there with. Um, I still know that I have this reference point. I have this touch point with the person behind the wine. I think it's really cool. Yeah, uh, it, it it sort of reminds me of something that, that Paul Greco once said in a lecture about wine lists, specifically what you mentioned about the video, right? So in a, in a world where maybe some people are afraid of some person-to-person stuff and might rather hang back and, and not talk in person but watch the video later, it's almost like having a conversation. And, and what, what Paul said was he was talking about wine lists in particular, and basically the point was you know, what's in the glass doesn't matter. What's on the list doesn't matter. What matters is the conversation and the dialogue that we are going to have, sort of just emphasizing hospitality. And if you can't have that dialogue or conversation because of something like the pandemic, then video and audio is is a really good substitute. Yeah. Well, and his wine list has always been a, 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 a physical, you know, a, him on a page really you know it is it was always a look into his brain it's always wild there was a lot of information in that wine list uh and i i am a, i do spend time on a wine list whether it's just a boring list or if it's something like that and his i don't necessarily need guests because i could read that wine list all day uh it is one of the most fun things to do isn't it to yeah. just go to that bar sit by your how many times have i just sat there by myself and read the list yeah yeah, very cool. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Um, I think it's you. Yep. Back to you. Okay. So next on my list is Millbrook uh, in the Hudson Valley. Have you been? Uh, I have. Yep. Mm-hmm. I actually spent a minute working there in summer of 2020 in the tasting room. Um, and it was kind of amazing. I learned a lot, both from the point of view of a consumer and, and uh, uh, someone in the industry. And what I what I appreciate about what they do is they really just kind of invited people in and said, you know what, go out and picnic and walk around in our vineyards. And just like, you know, it, I thought that was really kind of cool. I think people think that vineyards like uh, are like sort of off limits and you shouldn't be walking around vineyards. Like they're, this is like, it's not a museum, you know, these are not paintings behind glass. This is just, it's agriculture. You know I mean? Like farmers, they, they want people to get more into what goes on out in the field. And people were, because it was the pandemic, everyone wanted to be outside and it's a large, large campus. And people just sort of picnicked wherever they wanted. They'd go in, maybe they'd do a tasting. Maybe they'd just buy a couple bottles. There's usually a food truck. There sometimes was live music on the weekends. And you could just set up your blanket anywhere you want, sort of among the vines and, and just walk around and, and there, you know, if you have a question, go find someone, ask a question, drink a bottle of wine while you're sitting in that vineyard. That was one of my favorite things to point out when I was doing tastings, like, Hey, you're drinking this, uh, this single site, uh, Tokai Frilano, which comes from that vineyard block right there. And then mm-hmm. immediately after people would just walk out to that vineyard, maybe even taking their glass with them. I think using the vineyards and, and just reminding everyone that this is where this comes from, it should be sort of just more common practice. Um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, encouraging people to get out into the vineyards, if you have a safe and hospitable way to do that is, is a move. Couldn't agree more. Like I said, you know, wine is an agricultural product. I think it's very helpful to remind people that, especially when we're thinking about New York vineyards. These are small, often family-operated organizations. Uh, you know, and and uh, you know, farmers. You know, and so um, I think that is that is important uh, because you start to look at that vine and the care that goes into it and, uh, you know, the care for the soil and you start to wonder how a supermarket pulls it off at seven pounds a bottle, you know, $7 a bottle, whatever. And so, uh, no, I think that's, um, that's, that's really, that's brilliant, man. Very good. And I think it's a good reminder for, for winery owners and managers to, to remember that, you know, when the trade is coming through, it's so easy to just think, okay, well, let's just set them up here in the tasting room. And man, I've got a lot of this particular wine that I need to move. I need to make sure they taste this and that, and this other wine that I need to move. And then it's like, you're ta- you're making them taste like, you know, 15 wines and no one has really said anything about a vineyard. You know, yeah. it's, it's. And I get it. I understand that because as a now as a kind of winery owner myself, I uh, I think about that stuff all the time too. And I have to remember, okay, not everybody wants to come in and power taste and you know make sure to c- keep it hospitable, keep it keep it light, keep it tight, and uh, you know recognize that uh, you know sometimes too much is too much. Um, so yeah. I, I just think that it's good for all of us to, to remember not to not to make everybody taste too much, not to kill their palates, you know, keep them wanting more. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I'm, me, you know, personally, I'm a I'm a terroir guy, you know, I, you know, that that very first formative Finger Lakes experience was looking at the lake, seeing the slope, feeling the air looking at the dirt, you know, all of that and tasting it in the glass, you know, um, and, and we could go back and forth all day, whether there's a, a true A to B correlation and, and, and about, you know, the finished product and all that fine, but it's still, you know, that sense of place matters to me. And I think, um, in terms of sales and in terms of hospitality, I think conveying that's really important. Um, you know, I'm also a big rock guy. I've always collected rocks as a kid and I still do. And, and now most of the rocks that I collect are from vineyard sites and, uh, and, and, um, wine regions. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's just the best. So I love to, to kind of walk down a row and just stick my hand into the dirt a little bit and, and, you know, and get a feel for what's going on. And, um, 
some of the, the the best vineyard visits I've had is when the winemaker says, look at this block here. This is my block, right? And look at the difference between this block and my neighbor's block over here, you know, and you could tell that there's different farming practices, whether one's good or one's bad is kind of neither here nor there, but they're different and they make for different results. And so, you know, ultimately I've decided that I appreciate you know, wines that tend to come from vineyards that are a bit more wild and aren't using Roundup and, uh, you know, and, and things like that. And so you kind of eventually can kind of form your opinion on on what farming practices appeal to you, even if it's purely aesthetic. You know, I just think this vineyard looks better than this vineyard, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it's a good way to kind of kind of decide, uh, you know, what wineries and, 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 and what kind of practices you want to support. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Uh, all right. Your turn. Yeah. All right. Back to me. So, uh, I have, um, so the experience is this isn't a New York winery. This is actually, uh, I was in Spain. I was in, uh, Rioja and I was at, uh, Lopez de Heredia, uh, Vino Tondonia. And, um, one of the things that they did for us there was they shared a back vintage. Now, um, what you need to know about this winery is that their, uh, their vintage wines are, are legendary. They are wines that are built for aging. Uh, it is, um, even their current vintage is probably currently 2009 or 10 right now. Um, and that's just, so they're sitting at it at the winery for 10 years before they release it. But then the idea is that you sit on these bottles even longer. They last forever. I've had their white wines going back to the early 80s. I've had their red wines going back to the 60s and the 70s. Um, and for me, you know, they are, this is a winery that is making wines specifically to age, right? And they believe that their wines taste better over time and better with age. And I do think there are wines out there on the East Coast in New York that a winemaker is making with 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 age in mind. And I know, you know, as a young, young-ish, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, wine uh, uh, region, there's not a lot of kind of back vintage stuff kicking about. But I think if you can show that context between a back vintage and a current vintage wine, uh, I think that's really eye-opening for a consumer. And I think that's um, might help bridge the gap uh, to get them to want to uh, store a bit of wine and purchase maybe six bottles to tease them out one every five years to see how it develops and changes. Because I think, you know, a lot of professionals can wax poetic about that process, but for the average consumer, it never really clicks because they don't have that A to B comparison. Um, whereas, you know, we did this, uh, this tasting in, in Rioja and uh, tasted the current wines, fantastic. And then she pulls out this little like unlabeled half bottle and <laughs> she says, yeah, this is really funny. She goes, we, we found a case of these just kind of like, in the corner under one of the vats covered in cobwebs and spiders really weird about this cellar thousands upon thousands hundreds of thousands of spiders in the cellar uh and they actually did like they had like scientists come in to like kind of figure out why and they're not like bad spiders they're actually good spiders and they're like li literally like feeding off of the mold from the wines from the fermentation process absolutely wild stuff you got to check this this place out it's uh it is really a special place but uh it turned out that this uh little half bottle they had to kind of like not carbon date, but essentially carbon date the cork uh, because there was no label on it and they couldn't figure out how long these wines have been sitting there just kind of in the corner in the dark. Um, and they figured it out it was like a 1973. Um, uh, and to taste that and and to think, oh my God, this, this has been almost nearly neglected for 50 years and it tastes like this, you know, uh, and it just goes to show the, the highlight, the, the kind of, thinking process that goes into the winemaking to make a wine like that. You know, and I know that you talked about some of these Long Island red blends that 10 years on are really, you know, showing their best. And, and it's tough because you go to the winery and you don't ever get to see that you taste 2020 and it's an incredibly different wine and different experience than 
when that wine has 10 years of age on it. And so I want to be able to kind of pull back the curtain on that and, and show that to consumers uh, because I think people will, will start to, to, to drink differently. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. I think library wines are very powerful. It's a, it's a, a way, even if, even if you don't have them to sell, just, just pouring tastes of things like that for people to see the direction that the wines are going to go in is a very cool thing. It's something I've been thinking about lately. I, I have the opportunity to buy some some older Long Island wines, and you know they're expensive, and I don't even know that I would be able to buy enough to to be able to to really uh, sell them in in the store. But um, but I, but I'm thinking about just buying a small amount, even just to open and pour for people because. That's a, a memorable experience, even if they can't take that bottle with them. Yep, absolutely. Definitely something that I'm working towards kind of building out this portfolio for this eventual brick and mortar. I want to be able to do, um, you know, these, these vertical flights, essentially, um, whether it's multiple vintages or just two to say like you get, you know, uh, 50 ml of, of this wine now, and then 50 ml of this wine 10 years ago and taste them side by side. I think people are going to really get engaged with, with that kind of experience. Uh, and I'd love to see it at more wineries. So yeah, very good. And I think it's, it's, it's something that it's, we need to remember that a consumer might not really understand what you're doing. Like, okay, Hey, check this out. Here's a 2011, uh, version of this. And here's a, 2021 version of this you know if you put that in front of of a consumer i think it's important to put yourself in their shoes and, and try to remember that they they're going to be like wait what what uh and, and and to try to try to realize like what that experience is going to be like for them and i think you with training as an actor uh, and i you know i went to school for music sometimes i i if i'm listening to new music or, or if somebody wants to show me something, I try to forget, you know, any music theory training that I have or whatever. Like, I, I don't know if you do that as an actor too. Like if you're watching something, uh, you know, to try, to try to understand it without sort of that insider knowledge, I think is really, really helpful. And, and when I, when I do that and I put myself in the shoes of someone who's never had that kind of winery experience tasting, you know, the 10 year old version up with the current version. Uh, it's, it's interesting to, to get into their head and, and to try to think like, what is that going to mean for them? And I really don't know. I don't know that everybody likes old wine. I think that maybe we've overemphasized the importance of wine aging, but uh, a, a, a worthy exercise, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, think about, if, if we're talking 10 years, just position as like, think about what the world was like when this wine was made in 2012. What a, what a different place that, the, you know, a different, different, just, just vibe that was going on in the world when this was made, you know, and, and even if you just kind of put a little bit of that into the tasting, I think people could, could really engage with it. Uh, and yes, this is definitely borderlining on, on the geeky, geeky side of the experience, but I think just the kind of power of, uh, and magic of time, uh, is something that I'd love to at least introduce to, to consumers, whether or not it, it, you know, changes the world. And I don't think that every wine should be made and built to age. That's not the point. You know, I know that the majority, overwhelming majority of wines produced world over are meant to be drank in their youth. And that is absolutely correct. Uh, but I think the mistake is making wines to be aged and then not uh, creating an experience that allows people to understand why. So leave it at that. Fittingly, I, my next winery is also not a New York winery. Uh, I got a California winery on my list, uh, which is Literai uh, hmm. in Sonoma. Have you been to Literai? I have not. I have not. I've tasted some of the wines, but but no, I've not been. So yeah, quite quite famous wines, uh, expensive wines, um, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and some other cool curiosities. There's even some Chenin Blanc. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a famous California winery. They're well known for their biodynamic farming. Uh, Ted Lemon, the proprietor winemaker, has made wine in Burgundy and and uh, in the Southern Hemisphere as well. And the way that that tour was set up, this was this was a tour for for people in the trade. And I have mixed feelings about this. I, on the one hand, it was it was quite brilliant. So I show up, and 
there's a group of about, I don't know, 15 or 20 or so. And basically they, they do it that way so that they can accommodate more people. Cause it's certainly a, an in-demand winery and, and uh, I don't think they would have the bandwidth to give everybody individual tours. Although, you know, I'm sure there are some people who are a big enough deal to get that, but these were, this was a good group of trade from sort of all over. And they, they basically walk you through their farm and then the whole thing ends with it, with a tasting. And it's, it's quite something to see a, a, a true biodynamic operation like that for the first time. I think that was probably the first uh, true biodynamic farm that I went to. And there's a lot of, of, of beauty in that. And there, there's a lot to see and a lot to, to hear and to smell and, and to just kind of feel that energy that, that goes into the winemaking. So, I mean, you, you do walk away kind of feeling, well, I, I, I know why these wines are the way they are and why they cost what they cost. There's a dedication to, to regenerative agriculture and to, to being stewards of the land and, and to put something, something healthy and delicious in, in the glass and in the bottle. On the other hand, so I was on this trip with my mom. It was a mother-daughter trip. We went out to California. It was a great trip. We went to Ridge Montebello uh, and, uh, you know, some wineries, mom dropped me off and I did my thing and we met back up later. Uh, this is one that she tagged along with me for. And I don't really know that I knew what we were getting into. Uh, it was probably communicated well enough to me, but uh, but maybe I just didn't read the fine print or something. And I don't know that that's the kind of thing I would necessarily bring uh, uh, your 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 friend or, or family member or whatever who's not in the trade. It was maybe a little too much inside baseball uh, in, in that sense, but uh, I can't blame them for that. Uh, also, you know, if you're not into the group hang, if you're not into a big group tour sort of thing might not be for you. I'm sort of an annoying introverted New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I don't always like doing things in big groups. So, um, you know, on the one hand, it was a, it was a beautiful tour. On the other hand, not exactly what I would want to do on every tour, uh, but it was certainly memorable. I mean, here I am talking about it. This was back in 2016 and, uh, you know, you can't, can't really say anything bad about their wines. They're, they're, they're quite something. But uh, yeah, good experience, full farm tour, showing off that that uh, you know that you're being good to the land. I think everybody wants to see and hear that. Yeah, I think for for me, I have kind of formative experiences with biodynamic farming that um, showed me passion behind it in kind of two ways. One was uh, I was in New Zealand, I was in uh, Central Otago. And I was at Quartz Reef, uh, and the winemaker Rudy took us around, and you know, and he showed us his garden where he's growing all the preparations, and then you know, started to lift over, like the, lift these compost covers up, and like literally just like shoves his hand into the shit, and like smell this, you know, and like you could tell like how much he cared, and that was really nice. And then on the the flip side of that, and that was just myself and and my my wife on that one, you know, it was very much a, a trade, you know, uh, I was introduced to kind of experience, uh, and then on the other side. You you can go out to Napa to Raymond uh, Vineyards, and that's one of uh, John Charles Bossier's, uh, uh, one of the feathers in his cap. Uh, and he's a, a very um, a wonderful, eccentric individual, but um, he has uh, what they call the Theater of Nature Tour. Uh, and when I got to experience it, I, I was also, I was on a trade trip, but you can just walk through this on your own. And there are kind of placards throughout that are kind of introducing the different stages and preparations of biodynamic farming um, from the bat houses to, um, you know, the, the, the horns that end up being filled with manure and how the lunar energy and all that kind of stuff plays. And you, you can buy into that. And again, biodynamics as a whole other can of worms, pun intended, um, that uh, you could you could go into. But um, it was really nice to, you could just walk through and learn and see um, uh, quite a bit just on the way that they, they set this up. And I think that there's you know, enough uh, space kicking about at a lot of these wineries where uh, you could do a little loop that maybe goes past one of the rows of vines where you could really learn quite a bit. And so it it could be uh, an experience without having to employ a charismatic guide that's going to walk you through step by step. A self-guided tour could be really fun. Cool. Yeah. 
So I've really only got one more. We're, we're, we're just about a time too. And so um, I don't want to, uh, to run, run too long again, but um, you know, and I, and mine just kind of goes back to flights. And I think a lot of it is, is also kind of adjacent to what I was talking about with the library wines is just tasting with context, you know? And so whether that's a vertical flight or a horizontal flight where you're tasting just one vintage, um, you know, but to better understand Oak, I'd like to taste an oaked wine next to a stainless steel wine. If um, we want to showcase Finger Lakes Riesling, you know, maybe pour something from Germany next to it. Uh, I know uh, there are plenty of, of winemakers that would be up in arms about that concept, but I also know others that that are uh, doing it freely. And I know that, um, you know, we've done some some courses here in the export market in the UK, uh, where we've done just that, where we poured some New York state Rieslings next to some, uh, ones from, from, uh, international European regions to give global context. I think that's really important. Uh, and I think if we want to kind of grow out of where this little, you know, kind of mom and pop regions, and we want to be part of the larger wine world, I think we should, um, we should, let people kind of kind of see where we stand in that regard. So um, yeah, there's I think there's just a lot of fun to be had uh, with the way that you're pouring, the way that you're presenting your flights, where it doesn't just have to be these are our reds, and it's just the reds that we happen to have available now. You know, you could you could there could be thought behind it where you're you're. I want everything to be a little educational, and and I think it's it's funny because it goes back to what you were saying, where where you know your your three brothers visit could just be fun, and I think that's great too. Um, you know, but I also want, you know, people to leave as a little bit more of an educated consumer than when they left, because if we can just continue to raise that bar for everybody, all the wine's going to get better along with it. Yeah. I think that, you know, we can all be a little bit too sensitive uh, on the subject of comparing uh, our new world wines with, with benchmarks. Like, it's very good, very helpful for context. I agree. I think that that could be something that, uh, you know, we could all stand to do a little bit more. I just saw on social media that the winery in the Finger Lakes Silver Thread was doing that very recently. They had an event where oh, they great. were pouring their Cap, their Cap Franc and their Rieslings alongside French uh, Cap Francs and Rieslings. So I think that's smart. And I think uh, we don't need to be so sensitive about well, these are wines from New York. They don't have to taste like wines from you know anywhere else. And sure, they I get shouldn't. That, but they like, shouldn't taste like wines from somewhere else. That's the point. You don't want them to taste the same. And and I don't even think it's necessarily about about better or worse. It's just we're playing the same sport. <laughs> you know what I mean? These wines belong in the same league as as these other wines. And I also don't think that, you know, I think we are, if, you, if you're, you're going to get a bit mushy about it, you know, we, we're one world. We're, you know, this is agriculture. This is, this is ultimately something that people are putting into their bodies. You know, you can be supportive of of another winery and another, another region and be confident and, and happy to share their product too, you know? Yeah. I uh, couldn't agree more. Um, and that, that's, that's, I've been thinking about doing this at my spot recently. I want to, I want I want to do that. I want to get some, like some village level Burgundy Pinot Noir and pour them alongside some New York Pinot Noirs for, just for some, like, you know, just as a fun thing to do some night, same thing with, some Cap Franc or whatever else. I think the pitfall there is that people are always trying to make it a showdown, you know, like don't, don't make it a, don't make it a competition, you know, just, just, it's just for, for, for context, you know what I mean? And context can be so powerful in helping someone understand their preferences and their palate. So I'll stop. I'll stop. We're, we're running long. <laughs> and you, even if it is a little bit of a showdown, like that's kind of okay. I remember Chris Bates put a flight together, a blind flight together a couple of years ago um, when there was a, um, a big uh, like festival going on in the Finger Lakes and there were a lot of people around. And it was it was like Riesling, Cap Franc, Pinot, Syrah. Uh, and then he opened up Old World examples as a comparison. But I mean, you know the kind of seller he has. Like, So what he say, opened I, up so was I, like- I've done that flight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was Michel Lafarge. It was Clos Rojard. It was- um, close to you know, like Marcel uh, Dice. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was all like the heaviest of the heavies. And the point was not, look, our wines are just as good, or maybe it was, but also like, just like, Hey, look, like maybe we're not as good as the most famous wines in the world, but like, we're 
pretty close. Like we're right there, you know, hanging hard with them. So yeah, that's, let's all do more of that. Uh, I got one left on my list and I feel like let's do it. it That's fine. Throw it out quickly. And which is, uh, you know, I'm back to New York, Dr. Frank and Herman J. Weimer. And I'm throwing them in, in the same sentence because I was talking to a, a new winery owner, somebody who is newly purchased a winery in New York. And, and I said, what, what have you learned from, from bouncing around the region? What, what are you, what sort of, uh, tools of the trade are, are you seeing from some of these other wineries? And he said, you know, I continue to just be impressed by Dr. Frank and Herman Weimer and by their staff. He's, I, I, he said he feels every time he goes into their tasting rooms, the staff has all the knowledge. And, and because they have all the knowledge, they're more authoritative when it comes to doing tastings and selling wine. And they have the knowledge because they're well-trained by the owners and managers of those wineries. And so, you know what? Sometimes you just got to learn from the classics, from from the well-established wineries. Just take a look at what they're doing and and try to do it yourself just as well. I mean, I, I think about that all the time and and I and I try to uh, to have fun and engage my staff without making them do too much homework at home or anything like that. I think that's sort of, uh, you know, something uh, of uh, of the pre-pandemic times in the restaurant trade where you you had to sort of force your staff, make sure you know this wine list inside and out. You better be studying at home all the time. I don't really believe in asking people to to do work at home if I'm not paying them for mm-hmm. it, you know? Oh, yeah. So you do, have, you do have to come up with clever ways to, to always keep your staff uh, engaged, entertained, and and just filling them with even more knowledge. And I think Dr. Frank and the Weimer guys do a great job of that. Absolutely. Start each shift with a with a five minute lesson, and over the course of their first few weeks, they'll learn so much and retain it. And uh, it's uh, it could be real special. I think investing in your staff uh, is is wildly important. I think it goes back to many of our points that we've we've talked about today. Um, and uh, yeah, I love um, I love both those guys. So um, yeah, keep up the good work. All right. Well, I know you, you got a big trip coming up to, uh, to yeah. get ready for. So yep. let's let, head let's, to the let's East get Coast. You on your way. Yep, looking forward to it, and uh, and we'll be able to chat kind of on both ends of, of that trip, which I'm I'm really looking forward to, and uh, and yeah, we're gonna spend some time in uh, the Finger Lakes and uh, Niagara, which will be cool. It'll be my first time up there, so we'll definitely touch on that too. Awesome, super stoked for you, kind of jealous. All right, brother, we'll talk again soon, and um, happy summer, bud. Sounds good. Travel safe. Cheers. This is a Northern Wine Odyssey presented by Cork Report Media. Big thanks to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. Many thanks for listening. Onward and upward. See you next time.